Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. For that. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. We are back in the Gospel of John, having been out of it for a few weeks. And as you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. What are you most passionate about? When you stop and you think about your life, what motivates you, what moves you, what engages you, what are you most passionate about? Now, sadly for some people, it may be a sports team. Now, I'm a huge Broncos fan. I didn't like how the the game ended on the fourth quarter on Monday night. That was kind of frustrating. Hopefully today will be a better thing. I love the Broncos, but let me just ask you a question. Are the Broncos ultimate? Are they what you live for? I mean, some people eat, breathe, and and drink Broncos. It's their life. It's their consumption. It's their passion. For some people, it may be a political cause. They give time. They give energy. They give resources to the cause, whatever political cause it may be. And, and, And the cause has become ultimate. The cause has become what controls them. The cause has been their, their passion. For some people, they're passionate about work. Their career. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't be passionate about your job. You shouldn't take pride in your job. I'm not saying that. But for some people, it's become more than just a career. It's become a magnificent obsession where you've become a workaholic and everything is about your job. And so the question is, should a sports team be ultimate? Should a political cause be ultimate? And should your job be ultimate? You see, these things can become consuming passions in our lives that drive us, that motivate us, that that engulf us. And and really, when you stop and think about it, that becomes rank idolatry when those things take over and become ultimate. What are you obsessed about? What are you passionate about? Let me ask you a different question. In the hours right before his death, what was Jesus himself most passionate about? I mean, what consumed Jesus? What drove Jesus? What was Jesus, if I dare say, his magnificent obsession in those hours right before the cross? It was none other than a red-hot, blazing passion for the ultimate in God's glory. It was God's glory as ultimate. In the past four chapters Jesus has been teaching his disciples. We've been in this for a long time. If you go all the way back to John chapter 13, Jesus gathers his men in the upper room. He washes their feet. He institutes the Lord's Supper. And then he begins to teach them. He begins to teach them about going away. He begins to teach them about the Holy Spirit. He begins to teach them about joy. He begins to teach them about tribulation. He begins to teach them about um, bearing fruit and abiding in him. And facing persecution. Then, if you remember a few weeks ago, how does chapter 16 end? It ends on a triumphant note. Jesus promises this immeasurable joy, this intimate access, and this um, 
indestructible peace that passes understanding because he will overcome. But we transition into chapter 17. And in chapter 17, Jesus leaves his disciples to go off by himself and to pray to the Father. Because he's about to experience the most intense period of suffering that anybody in the history of the world would ever experience. And so chapter 17 is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the Bible. So we're going to spend a long time in this over the coming weeks. But before we dive into the text of the actual prayer that Jesus prays, in John 7, chapter 17, I want to ask some preliminary questions about the prayer because there's some things surrounding this prayer that we need to understand. We need to get ourselves into the setting, if you will. And so here's the first question we've got to ask about this. What's the context of this prayer? What's the context of this prayer? What's going on surrounding this prayer? Well, if you remember, Jesus had told his disciples, you're going to experience tribulation. You're going to experience persecution. The world's going to hate you. But do you remember? This is Passover. This is Passover. That holy day in Jerusalem where over a million people flocked to the city to have lambs sacrificed during that time. It's Passover. Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote that at that time there were two 150,000 lambs being slaughtered in Jerusalem. Quarter of a million lambs being slaughtered in Jerusalem during that week. Which brings up an interesting question. What do you do with all that blood? Up on the Temple Mount where they sacrificed those lambs, they had to have a drainage ditch to get rid of all the blood. So there was a drainage ditch a drainage system that came from the Temple Mount and it emptied down into what was called the Kidron Valley, the Kidron Brook. And as Jesus leaves the upper room and goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, he and his disciples have to cross the Kidron Brook, which at that time estimated it may have been even knee-deep with blood. A startling reminder for Jesus as he's about to go to the cross and about to pray before his father as he walks through this blood from all the lambs that are being slaughtered, a sharp reminder that he's the ultimate lamb of God about to go sacrifice himself on the cross. Luke twenty two forty four. Luke's account says this, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. It's Passover. The Lamb of God is going to the slaughter. And before that, he sweats drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying to his Father. Second question, what's the reason for the prayer? Why does Jesus pray? Well, first of all, it's his habit. If you go and look at the Gospels, Jesus is always praying. Especially in the Gospel of Luke, he's always going off by himself. He always prays to the Father. He spends intimate time with the Father. So this is part and parcel of who Jesus is. He just prays. But this is a special prayer because this is the the final prayer right before the cross. 
right before he's to face that impending torture on the cross, Jesus goes to his father and pours out his heart in prayer for strength to face the cross. Next question. What's the magnitude of the prayer? This has historically been called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Philip Melanchthon, who was Martin Luther's successor and student, said this about this prayer. I like what Melanchthon says. He says, quote, There's no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or in earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself. We are about to enter into the Holy of Holies where Jesus himself is going to pour out his heart before God. Now, why is it called the high priestly prayer? In the Old Testament, the high priest, Aaron, performed two functions. Number one, the priest would pray for the people, and then he would sacrifice for the people. There's an intrinsic link between the prayer ministry of the priest and the sacrificial ministry of the priest. In Exodus chapter 28, we have detailed descriptions about the priestly garment that Aaron would wear as he enters into the Holy of Holies to sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. It's called an ephod, not an iPod, an ephod. The priestly garment extravagantly woven. And it's interesting, if you go back to Exodus 28, you find out in the ephod that Aaron was to wear, there were two onyx stones on the shoulders. And on these onyx stones, on one side were inscribed six of the twelve tribes of Israel, and on the other, the other six tribes of Israel. And then on the breastplate, there were four rows of very expensive stones. And engraved on those stones were also the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now you may ask, why were the names so close to Aaron's heart? And why were the names on his shoulders? Exodus chapter 28, 29 through 30 explains this. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. Think about the imagery here. Aaron's got the name of God's people close to his heart. So when he walks into the Holy of Holies, he's supposed to pray for those people right before he offers sacrifices to those people. So Aaron prays for the people of God that are close to his heart, and in a sense he bears the judgment of those people on his shoulders by sacrificing the sacrificial animal. So there's no separation in what the high priest did. The high priest prayed for the people, and then he made atonement for those People. There's no separation between the high priestly work of Jesus in his prayer ministry and the high priestly work in his atoning ministry. They're intrinsically tied together. And I want you to notice something, too. When the high priest goes in there, he does not have the name of the Ammonites or the Moabites or the Philistines or the Egyptians. He has the name of God's people. 
It is a particular redemption. It is a definite atonement that he goes in to make for God's people, the Israelites. And so why do I bring this up, this whole discussion about the Old Testament high priest? They would pray for the people and sacrifice for the people because the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our high priest. Hebrews 2.17. It's talking about Jesus. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That is what Jesus is doing right here in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is, if you think about it, visualize it for a moment. As Jesus enters into prayer with the Father, he's carrying your name close to his heart to pray for you and then just moments later to die for you as the high priest. He's going to pray for you. He's going to die for you as the high priest. And when he rises again from the dead... And Jesus is in heaven right now. What is he doing for his people right now? Hebrews 7.25 says this, Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus right now is our high priest in heaven making intercession for us because of what he did starting in the garden. Praying for us and then atoning for us. The high priestly prayer. What's the structure of the prayer? What's the structure of the prayer? It's very simple. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. In verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his immediate disciples. In verses 20 through 26, Jesus prays for us, future believers. Now, all woven through this, I think Jesus is praying for us. And so, since this is the longest recorded prayer in the Bible... And since this is the Holy of Holies, and since these, this is Jesus' prayer, I think we need to spend some time on it. And so in verses 1 through 5, where Jesus prays for himself, I began to do a sermon prep this week. And I said, you know what? I see three truths in this. And I thought I'd preach all three truths in one sermon. And then I realized, you know what? I need to spend a Sunday on each of these truths. Because I don't think you can just pack them in on one sermon. So here's where we're going. Three things we see in the cross. Three things we see in, in verses 1 through 5. We see God's glory. We see God's sovereignty. And we see God's salvation. Today we're just going to focus on glory. Because that's where it all starts. So with that being the backdrop, I know I've given you a lot of preliminary this morning, but I want us to understand what we're stepping into. We're stepping into the high priestly prayer of Jesus, the very words of Jesus, what, what's on his heart, what his passion is right before he goes to the cross. And it's amazing what you hear come from his lips. So let's read it together. John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. John chapter 17, 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words... He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. 
I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Glory, glorify, shows up five times in five verses. It's the key word. So here's the central theme of what we're going to look at today. Jesus' ultimate desire was a passion for God's glory in the cross. A passion for God's glory. So notice how Jesus begins. He lifts his eyes up to heaven and he prays. And how does he start? He starts, Father. That's how he taught us to pray, our Father in heaven from Matthew chapter 6. But notice the first thing that Jesus says. Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. Now, what does Jesus mean by the hour? Well, it's none other than God's sovereign timetable to bring about the events surrounding the cross and and everything that Jesus needed to accomplish in order to redeem us and save us. And so up to this specific point in the Gospel of John, Jesus kept saying, the time has not come. I mean, go back to chapter 2 for a moment. I'm going to take you on a little journey here. Go back to chapter 2, his very first public miracle, turning water into wine. Remember his mom wants to come out, Mary, and she wants to kind of push him out into the spotlight to say, hey, you need to make yourself public. You, you, need, to, you need to let everybody know who you are. And, and in John chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It's not time. The time for my full glory to be on display has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. Okay, go to chapter 7. Verse 30, chapter 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid hand on him because his hour had not yet come. It's not time for his crucifixion. It's not time for his arrest. It's not time for his trial. The hour had not yet come. In God's timetable, it wasn't time yet. The hour had not come. Okay, go to chapter 8, verse 20. Chapter 8, verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. You see it? The hour had not yet come. It's not time yet. It's not God's sovereign timetable. Now go to chapter 12, verse 23. This is right before the upper room. So chapter 12 is right before chapter 13 where Jesus takes his disciples to the upper room. What, is jo- what does Jesus say in John 12, 23? Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now it's come. And so you've got the upper room. You've got chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So the events that happen in that upper room on Thursday night, the teaching, the training, going into the wee hours of Friday morning, the first thing out of Jesus' mouth is, Father, the hours come. It is sovereignly here. So what I want us to do this morning is I want to look at four truths 
that help us to see God's glory in the cross. And and I want us to see Jesus' burning passion for God's glory in the cross. And as we look at Jesus' burning passion for God's glory in the cross, it will motivate us to have that same passion for, for God's glory in the cross as well. So here's the first thing we see. First, we glorify God through dependent prayer. You may be thinking to yourself, If God is sovereign and the hour has come and God's got it all figured out and Jesus knows the future and God is sovereign and kasera, kasera, what's going to be is going to be, why in the world does Jesus pray? It doesn't do any good. It's already fixed. You see, we don't pray to change God's mind. We don't pray to change God's sovereign plan. You see, the purpose of prayer is not to change God. The purpose of prayer is to change us so that we are more dependent, so that we show ourselves to be more reliant upon God. D.A. Carson has wisely said it this way, That God's appointed hour has arrived does not strike Jesus as an excuse for resigned fatalism, but for prayer. Precisely because the hour has come for the Son to be glorified, he prays that the glorification may take place. We who believe in God's sovereignty should never sit back and say, if God's got it all figured out, we might as well not pray. Let me just change your vocabulary. Because God's got it all figured out, we should pray. Because it shows our dependence. It shows our intimacy. We're not telling God any information he doesn't already know. He knows what we need before we ask. So we're not telling him anything he doesn't already know. But we're aligning our heart to his mission. We're aligning our heart to his agenda. We are getting into a posture of being dependent and intimate. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's relying upon his Father in these moments so that he goes to prayer. John Calvin put it very eloquently. He says, true, God will do whatever he's decreed. Not only though the whole world were asleep, but though it were opposed to him, but it is our duty to ask from him whatever he's promised because his sovereignty and promises are to excite us to prayer. Because God is sovereign, we pray. So we don't pray to change God's mind. We pray to show dependence. And Jesus has confidence that the hour has come. Jesus has confidence in God's sovereign timetable. Jesus says, I know your sovereign plan is now. And because I know your sovereign plan is now, that means all the more I'm going to depend in prayer upon you, Lord, through this. So we glorify God through dependent prayer. Now here's second. This is a little bit more of a theological issue, but it's very important to understand. We glorify God by worshiping Jesus as the eternal Son who is co-equal with God. This is a prayer for reciprocal glory. Notice what Jesus prays. This is the primary prayer request. In verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. It's, It's reciprocal glory. Father, glorify me so that in that I may glorify you. Now, at first glance, we're not bothered by that language because we understand that Jesus is glorifying God and we talk about that all the time. But if you were an Old Testament Hebrew or you're a a Jew listening to this, this would have shocked you. 
Listen to what God says in the Old Testament. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God's not going to share his glory with anybody. Isaiah 48, 11. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God's a jealous God. God's a holy God. He's not going to share his glory with anybody else. So for Jesus to pray, Father, glorify me, the only way Jesus can pray that is if he is God. Because God's not going to share his glory with anybody else unless you are the eternal son of God, equal with God, always existing as God, can you actually pray that prayer? Now, Jesus is not the same person as the Father. They're distinct persons, but they share the same essence as God. They both share the same divinity. They, they both share the same eternality. John 1.1 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus has always existed in eternity past as God. He wasn't created. He's not the same person as the Father. He's distinct from the Father, but he shares the same essence and substance as God. And so that's why Jesus can actually pray, Father, glorify me, because he is God. And then Jesus came in the flesh, John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know what Paul says about Jesus? Colossians 2.9 For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Hebrews 1.3 He, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance or the shining forth of the glory of God. In the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We must never fall into the ancient heresy called Arianism. Arius was an ancient heretic who believed that Jesus was somehow less than God, that Jesus was created, that Jesus was subordinate. No, Jesus here, in praying for reciprocal glory, is saying, glorify me, Father, because I am equal to you. I am of the same essence of you. And so only Jesus can pray that prayer. Notice Philippians 2, 6-11. Though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the very form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I don't have time to unpack Philippians 2, 6-11, but it basically teaches that Jesus is co-equal with the Father. Jesus has always existed, but he voluntarily laid aside those privileges. When it says he emptied himself, it doesn't say, liberal theologians will say he emptied himself as a, of his divinity and he basically came to earth as an exalted man. That's not what it says. The original language is very clear that he was, in fact, the very essence of God, always existing as God. When he came to earth, he voluntarily laid aside all those privileges and came to live as a man. So Jesus did not give up anything when he came to earth. He just added humanity to his divinity. 
fully God, fully man, in a body, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And God exalted him. But at this moment right here, right when Jesus is praying, that's, what, that's how Paul describes he's becoming obedient to death on the cross. He's taken the lowest, the lowest spot. Now look at verse 5. If you're not convinced by that, look at verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus had the glory of God in eternity past, came to earth, as a man, fully God, fully man, displayed God's glory, goes to the cross and says, God, would you please glorify me in this? So theologically here, we've got to understand that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, co-equal with the Father, distinct in person, but yet fully God and fully man. And at the cross, he's going to be glorified, and then God's going to raise him to be the King of kings and Lord of lords, the name above all names. Third, we should not ask to be free from trials and tribulations, but to display his glory through suffering. Does your Bible say, Father, the hour has come. Please let me escape it because I really don't want to go through this. Those people are sinful and I really don't like nails. I don't like your wrath, so please let's just figure out plan B. Is that what Jesus says? No, Jesus says, listen, Father, I know I'm about to go through the most excruciating torture, the, the, the worst punishment that anybody's ever going to go through, the worst trial, the worst tribulation, the worst suffering, the worst persecution, and I'm not asking for you to take me out of it. I'm asking that you would be glorified through it. That's an amazing prayer. That's a self-emptying prayer. He's not praying for selfish comforts or conveniences. He's praying for God's glory. Matthew's gospel says it this way. Matthew 26, 38 through 39. Then he said, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What's the cup that Jesus was going to have to drink? The cup is God's wrath of justice poured out upon sin. Isaiah 51, 17, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Jesus knows he's going to have to drink that cup of God's justice against our sin. And Jesus looks that reality in the face and says, Not my will, but your will be done. So Jesus does not pray to be taken out of the suffering, but that God would be glorified through the suffering. And I wonder if that's the way that we pray. How do we normally pray? God, I don't want to go through this. God, I want to be immune to this. God, don't let me suffer. God, don't let me go through tribulations. God, I don't want to face persecution. God, I don't want to have to have anything uncomfortable. God, I don't want to have to be inconvenienced. Uh, God, I want, I, want, I want things my way. Isn't that the way we often pray? Go back to chapter 16, verse 33. What did Jesus just tell them before he prayed? Go back to the very last verse of chapter 16. Verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation 
but take heart, I've overcome the world. You will have tribulation. You'll have it. Not you may, it will come. So listen to me very carefully. God may not take you out of tribulation, but he will always promise to be there with you through it. He may not ever take you out of the situation, but he will promise his presence through it. Listen to what Isaiah 43, 1-3 says. But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You're mine. When, not if, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Jesus did not pray to ask to be taken out of the suffering, but he prayed that God would be glorified through it. And so if you're suffering, if you're going through a trial, realize that God is using that to bring glory to himself. Now, that may seem counterintuitive. That may not make sense. And God may not alleviate the pain. He's doing it to put his glory on display so that you'll go to him in dependent prayer and you'll see his presence through it. And so when you're going through trials, always remind yourself, how am I glorifying God through suffering? Here's the fourth To the world, the cross is an instrument of shame and foolishness. But to us, the cross is absolutely glorious. I'm going to ask you, if you will, to turn over to the book of 1 Corinthians for just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. All throughout this prayer, Jesus is praying for God's glory. The hour's come. The cross is coming. Glorify me. Glorify me. I want to receive glory. I want you to receive glory. It's all about God's glory in the cross. But how does the world view that? How does the world see that? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 18. For the word, some of your translations may say message, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews, they demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul says there's only two classes of people in this world. Those who are perishing and find the cross moronic, and those who are being saved and find the cross beautiful there's there's no middle ground you're either perishing or you're in christ and and paul uses an interesting word there he says to the world to those that are perishing it's folly foolishness it's the greek word moros where we get our word moronic 
Paul's saying to a person who's got blinders on their eyes that just looks at the cross, that looks at Jesus, that looks at all this Christianity stuff, it is offensively, foolishly moronic. It's stupid. It's silly. It doesn't make sense. You see, the cross was an instrument of death. We've sanitized the cross in our culture today. People wear crosses on their necks. We've got jewelry. It would be like the equivalent of wearing an electric chair around your neck. Somebody walked up to you like, ooh, what's that? It's an electric chair. Something wrong with you? It was an instrument of death. It was an instrument of torture. No self-respecting person would die on a cross, much less a king. It was reserved for criminals, for the lowest of low. So it was foolish. Well, let me just ask you a question. Why is the cross moronically offensive to a lost and dying world? Why is it so offensive? Here's why it's so offensive. The cross is so offensive because it cuts you down to size. It exposes your pride. It exposes your guilt. And it shows you you can't save yourself and you have to cast yourself at one that can't. And the world does not want to be confronted with guilt. The world does not want to be confronted with shame. The world does not want to have their pride affected. And when they look at the cross, it cuts them. And then they push back and say, that's offensive, that's moronic, that's foolish. They don't want to face the music that the cross says. You are a sinner and you can't save yourself. You need Jesus to save you. Martin Lloyd-Jones has said this. There's one thing I know that crushes me to the ground, humiliates me to the dust, and that is to look at the Son of God and especially think about the cross. So to the world, the cross is foolish. It's not something to glory in. It's not something that makes sense. It's offensive. But go down and look at verse 31 in in, in 1 Corinthians there. So as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know, in the original language, that word actually means glory. Let the one who glories, glory in the Lord. Now this is going to sound counterintuitive. There's room for boasting in the Christian life. (gasps) What do you mean? As long as your boasting's in Jesus. And your glorying is in Jesus, not in yourself. You see, Paul here is, is hearkening back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 9, 23-24. Listen to what Jeremiah says. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast, or you can maybe use the word glory, let not the wise man boast or glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast or glory in his might. Let not the rich man boast or glory in his riches, but let him who boasts, let him who glory, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. For I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And Paul says it in Galatians 6.14. Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Where is God's glory most clearly put on display? In the cross. 
Do you pray like Jesus for God's glory? Is that the heartbeat of your prayer? God, everything I'm praying, everything I'm desiring is for your glory to be on display. Do you worship Jesus as the radiant glory of God? Do you you see him as the, the one who's the eternal son of God who's worthy of all glory? Do you thank Jesus that he drank the cup to the last drop and he suffered and decided not to get out of the suffering but to go through the suffering so that you and I could be saved? Do you worship him for for going through the suffering as opposed to asking God to take him out of it? Not my will, but but yours be done. And do you boast in the foolishness of the cross? When when all the world thinks it's crazy, thinks it's ridiculous, thinks it doesn't make sense, do do you bow before Jesus and say, thank you, because if it were not for your cross, Jesus, I would be dead, I would be sunk, I would be lost. You see, in those impending and torturous moments right before Jesus would undergo the most excruciating torture and spiritual suffering that anybody ever would have to suffering what amazes me is what's first and foremost on his mind. I know it wouldn't be on my mind, but it's on his mind. It was an unwavering, red-hot passion for the glory of God to be on display. He had an unwavering, red-hot passion for God's glory to be on display in the cross. So I asked the question, would we have that same passion? Would we as God's people have an unwavering, red-hot passion for God's glory and enthusiasm for God's glory as it's revealed in the cross? We say it a lot here at Emmanuel. Everything comes back to God's glory. We exist to display God's glory. It's about Him and His glory alone. Not to us, O Lord, not to us but to your name be the glory because of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Would we be a people? If we're going to boast, we're not going to boast in the Broncos. We're not going to boast in our jobs. We're not going to boast in a political cause. We're not going to boast that we're Americans. Here's how we're going to boast. We're going to boast that God saved wretches like us through Jesus Christ. And he's our Lord and he's our Savior. And we want to give him glory above all. If we're going to boast... Let's boast in Jesus because he's worth it. Amen? Is he worth it? Amen. Let's go to him in prayer this morning. Moments where we have seen the magnitude of your love and your glory on display here in the pages of Scripture. Our desire is to glorify Jesus. Lord, would you give us an unwavering red-hot passion for the glory of Christ? Would we dependently pray for your glory? Jesus, would we worship you for who you truly are as the radiance of God's glory? Would we glorify you through our suffering? And will we boast in the cross? Lord, the world may think we're foolish. The world may think we're crazy. We may even be the aroma of death to some. But Lord, to those of us who've been called, to those of us who've been saved, 
The cross is the power and wisdom of God. I don't know about anybody else here, but that's where I want to be, in the power and wisdom of God. So Lord, keep us near the cross. Keep our hearts inflamed with love towards you, Jesus, in the cross. Help us to see that our whole lifestyle is one of displaying your glory to others as living sacrifices. May everything about our lives be boasting about you. We love you, Jesus. We honor you. We worship you. Holy Spirit, would you take the words that have been spoken this morning and when that seed fall on good ground, good soil. If there's anybody here today that doesn't know Christ, would today be their day of salvation through repentance and belief in him alone. We love you. We praise you. It's in your name we ask these things, Lord. Amen.